Welcome to Oncology Today, Management of Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. For this program, I met with Dr. Peter Hillman from the University of Leeds School of Medicine. In addition to this audio podcast, there's also a corresponding video program with Dr. Hillman's slide presentation. To begin, he discussed his approach to the evaluation of a patient requiring first-line treatment. So when we see patients with frontline CLL, obviously we follow the IWCL criteria for treatment, but initiation, I would assess the patient for molecular markers, particularly IGHV, mutation and 17P. For the patients with 17P deletion, I think it's fairly clear that the evidence now is continuous BTK inhibition is the best approach for those patients. So, for example, a recent patient I saw who had bulky disease with a lot of nasopharyngeal disease, 17P deleted, which we wouldn't have known, of course, without doing the appropriate tests. And we would definitely recommend FISH and sequencing P53 to exclude telephy considering chemotherapy. This patient was treated with acalbutinib. This is available in the UK. Tolerated the drug very well. It's now about six months into treatment for lymphocytosis. The nodes go down very quickly. He had a very very good response, and is now on treatment. We don't have the ability to add a binituzumab with this, some suggestion that might deepen remissions in patients with CLL. So that may be something for the future, I think. So the patient that I'm considering is a patient in his early 50s, so he's a, a youngish patient with bulky disease, male patient, previously very fit. He's actually just come out of the army in the UK, so he's a very fit guy. We had a lot of discussion about how intensive we should manage him. Of course, historically, we would have considered transplant as an option for patients like that, certainly fit for an allergenic transplant. But the outcomes we're seeing with BTA inhibitors are so good, it's not justifiable in the front line to consider transplant even for these very poorest patients. His big issue was really that he had a lot of nasopharyngeal disease, and so that was causing him problems not obstruction, but difficulty swallowing and snoring and some minor obstructive features. So we really wanted quite rapid control of the bulky disease and BTK inhibitors certainly provide a very rapid response usually without any flare. How high was his white count and where exactly did he have the lymphadenopathy? Yeah, so he had pretty widespread lymphadenopathy generally. So the largest nodes for recollection were certainly between five and 10 centimeters on the scan. He had quite aggressive disease. His tonsils were touching the midline, but his peripheral blood wasn't too severe, so in about a 60-70 lymphocyte count range. We very rarely see issues with even very high lymphocyte counts, so, you know, certainly treated patients with BTA inhibitors with lymphocyte counts well above 600 and not run into problems, because sometimes you see the flare of the lymphocyte count early on. So he had the doubling of his lymphocyte counts, as I recall, in the first month or so of treatment. And when he started on therapy, any tolerability issues, any headache, and what happened to the lymph nodes? Yeah, so he didn't have any headaches, but we sometimes see these sort of almost like neutrophilic skin reactions we see with the BTK inhibitors sometimes. He had a little bit of acniform type rash on his back, which was a nuisance. So he had that. Apart from that, he tolerated it very well. He didn't have headaches. We see headaches in about 40% of our patients. And they're manageable usually with caffeine or with other simple analgesics. I think warning the patients is very important to prepare them for it so they're not worried about headaches. We very rarely stop it for that reason. And the nodes respond very quickly. So he had, in terms of the symptomatic nodes, the nasopharyngeal disease responded really quickly. Within days, he was feeling better, but objectively within a few weeks of treatment, these had gone down. So he had a very nice response. I think partly because he had very proliferative CLL. And these sort of patients with the IGHV or mutated 17P disease are very sensitive 
generally to BTK inhibitors, probably because they signal through BTK a lot biologically. I think that's a good explanation. So if you look at the data we have for VH mutated for good risk patients as opposed to IGHV unmutated, the unmutated patients, in my experience, tend to respond more quickly to a BTK inhibitor, probably because their disease signals through BTK, BCL receptor, is more active in that group of patients, whereas the IGHV mutated patients tend to not signal as actively through the BCL receptor. I've never heard anybody talk about a connection, I guess, biologically between IGVH and BTK inhibitors before. Could you explain that a little more? I never heard about that. It was a little bit back when we, when we first looked at IGHV, ZAP70 was a surrogate for IGHV mutation, and the unmutated patients were ZAP70 positive, because ZAP70 is on the pathway, effectively, of apparently being expressed through BCL receptor signaling. So with the unmutated CLLs, as a general rule, the signaling through the BCL receptor leads to proliferation of the disease. And so you get a very proliferative disease, and therefore you get a very rapid response often to BCA inhibitors. Whereas in the Mutated good risk patients, which is about a third to a half of our frontline patients needing treatment, they tend to have allergic responses, so they don't have a very proliferative response, and they respond very well to B-cell 2 inhibitors, as do unmutated. And, and actually, there's some really intriguing data coming out now that if you look at the MRD negative rates with venetoclax and venetuzumab, they're the same for mutated and unmutated. If you look at the MRD negative rates when you combine ibrutinib and venetoclax, they're higher for the unmutated patients. Wow. So there's some evidence that actually signaling through the BCO receptor is critical. So I think going forward, looking at the data we have, that we're probably looking at mutated patients, then a fixed duration of venetoclax venetuzumab leads to an 80% five-year progression-free survival, those patients have deep remissions and don't evolve, if you like. Whereas the unmutated patients, I think we will be combining a BTA inhibitor and a BCL2 inhibitor, leading to deep remissions and then stopping therapy. So I think we're going to start using IGHV to really nuance the most effective therapies for our patients. Just kind of curious, do you see different key 67s mutated, unmutated? You tend to see a higher K67 in the unmutated because they're more proliferative. Generally, with CLR, the K67 is lower. Well, one of the, it's very interesting, actually, with the K67. One of the challenges we have, particularly in refractory disease, is the diagnosis of rictus transformation. And I have a patient at the moment who's actually failed five lines of therapy. We can't get him to Leeds at the moment because he's a distance away. And there's a discussion whether he's got rictus or proliferative CLL. And in these very proliferative patients, often the PET scan can be quite avid, and the K67 can be quite high, but that's not enough to call it rictus, because histologically, many of these patients are still CLL. And it is important to differentiate that, because those patients will respond to BTA inhibitors if they're not transformed to rictus, whereas the rictus they have a very poor outcome with any therapy, but certainly with BTA inhibitors. So I think we need to really think carefully about how proliferative the diseases we are treating, and what's the most appropriate therapy for those patients. One of the aspects of the current treatment with BTK inhibitors is that these are used continuously until disease progression. And one way to manage side effects and to get better outcomes would be to have fixed duration therapy. So we saw an update of the GLOW study presented by Talmanir from Leeds, which was a randomized trial 
preparing a combination of ibrutinib plus venetoclax with paramisole abinutuzumab in the frontline setting in patients considered unfit for FCR. And what we saw with the primary endpoint of progression-free survival was a significant advantage for ibrutinib plus venetoclax given over a 12-month period of the combination over chloramicil abinutuzumab in this elderly group of patients and about 50% of patients achieving MRG negative remissions with the combination. This is slightly lower than we saw in some of the phase two trials where we generally treated younger patients and we possibly need longer follow-up and maybe longer treatment and there are phase three studies ongoing. But this study may well lead to the approval of this combination in some markets. The long-awaited trial is the combination in the Gaia study of the CL13 from the German CL study group presented by Barbara Eichhurst at the December meeting, showing that the MRD, which is one of the primary endpoints or the co-primary endpoints of the trial in peripheral blood, those under 65 received FCR and over 65 benamustard rituximab. Rituximab venetoclax, abinutuzumab venetoclax, and the triple combination of abinutuzumab, ibrutinib venetoclax. And we see an increasing complete remission rate shown in green by IWCL criteria up to 62% for the 12 months of the triple combination compared to 57% for abinutuzumab venetoclax and less for chemotherapy. The primary endpoint of the trial, were, the first co-primary endpoint was MRD in the peripheral blood, showing increasing levels of peripheral blood MRD. And maybe this is associated with abinutuzumab being more effective at clearing the blood, but in the light blue we see the 15-month bone marrow assessment showing an increasing MRD eradication from 37% with the chemotherapies combined, 43% with VENAR, and 72.5% and 77.9% with the doublet and triplets in the trial. So this isn't yet enough to change practice, but it shows that these combinations in young fit patients are achieving very deep remissions, which we know historically predict for better outcomes. If we look at the diverse events in this trial, then what we might expect, we see higher neutropenia and febrile neutropenia with the chemotherapy arm, 11% febrile neutropenia compared to 4 or 7.8% in the targeted therapy arms. Low levels of atrial fibrillation seen in the 12 months of the ibrutinib in the triplet arm. So manageable regimes. Two of the most interesting studies we've seen in the last year, this is at the summer meetings, was the comparison of the next generation BTA inhibitors with ibrutinib, the muscle-elective BTA inhibitor acalabrutinib in relapsed refractory disease. We presented this at the European meeting in June. This was a head-to-head comparison in patients who were either 17P or 11Q deleted with relapsed CLL. So this is obviously, we were trying to enriched for high-risk patients. It was a non-inferiority trial in terms of PFS, but with obviously the secondary endpoints of safety were key. There was no difference between the two arms in terms of progression-free survival. This is a large trial now with the median follow-up of over three years, this first presentation. So that allowed us to look at the secondary endpoints, and in a head-to-head comparative trial, we see a significant reduction in atrial arrhythmias, atrial fluttering fibrillation, with a 0.366 per 100 patient months on therapy compared to 0.72. So about 50% of the rate seen with acalabrutinib and leading discontinuation non in acala and 7 with ibrutinib. There were slightly more patients with prior history of AF in the acala arm. If we exclude those, the differences were 62 and 14.9% at this follow-up. 
This is the accumulative event rate of atrial fibrillation and, and the hypertension. So similar to the previous study of Alliance, we see a doubling of the atrial fibrillation rate and a hazard ratio of 0.34 in favor of acalabrutinib in terms of the emergence of hypertension, suggesting these more selective PT inhibitors will have less of a cardiac signal. And then if you look at the other, what we might term nuisance side effects, which we think are due to off-target inhibition with ibrutinib, bleeding events, diarrhea and arthralgia are all significantly reduced with acalabrutinib, the more selective BTA inhibitor. We also presented at the summer meeting the first head-to-head comparison of zanubrutinib against compared to ibrutinib in relapsed refractory disease. This was all comers with relapsed disease. It wasn't as refractory as the previous trial. 652 patients were randomized head-to-head but we presented the data from the first interim analysis of 415 patients. The high response rate was zanubrutinib, assessed at a median 15 months follow-up, 78 versus 62% for CR and PR added together. And in the 17P patients, similarly 80 versus 50%. And in terms of progression-free survival, it's a significant advantage for the more specific BTA inhibitors, zanubrutinib over ibrutinib. Although we have to highlight this is relatively short follow-up and we really do need long follow-up to see the comparison in this trial. The overall survival was not significantly different, but there were 97% overall survival at 12 months compared to 92.7% for ibrutinib. If you look at the side effects in the Alpine study, we see a significant reduction in atrial fibrillation, so 2.5% compared to 10%, relatively short follow-up, as I said, but no difference at this point in hypertension, a slight reduction in minor bleeding seen in the trials, but other than this, similar. Cumulative event rate of atrial fibrillation and flutter of zanubrutinib, similar to the data we saw with acalabrutinib, uh, hazard ratio, significant reduction in terms of the risk. This case that you just presented of this young patient with lesion 17P, I'm curious just to hear a little more about him as a person. Was he working? You said he was in the military and how he responded to hearing about this diagnosis in your plan. Yeah, so he was coming to the end of his military career because he was actually working in civilian, obviously he's in his early 50s, so he's still for a working age. But he's a very positive individual, so he wasn't going to take this lying down and actually came and sought out a centre that treated CLLN trials and see the best option. And I think certainly if we recommended transplant or whatever treatment we felt would have been most effective for him, he would have gone for that treatment. And maybe something, of course, if he's got porous disease, there's a chance in three, four years' time, whenever his disease may progress. And then I think he would certainly be a patient who would consider, even at that point, hydrogenated transplant or CAR-T therapy if we have trials open at that point. So I think patient choice is obviously very important. And the life expectancy of a patient without the CLR is important. So, you know, a 50-year-old fit man expects to live a long time, whereas if you're in your mid-80s, even if you're fit, you may want to have disease control rather than eradication. How long has he been on the acalabrutinib? So he's been on it now probably the best part of a year since he started this treatment. Okay, the reason I ask is because, you know, I'm looking at your list of factors in choice of therapy. And so number one is patient choice, and you just refer to that in this case. But number two is COVID-19. That's why I ask you the date because, you know, it depends. So that was a year ago. So that was kind of the Delta time, I guess. I'm just kind of curious, was that something he was concerned about? I'm sure you were concerned about it. 
And maybe you could just take a moment and kind of just talk a little bit about how you've approached your patients over the last two years. COVID's had a major impact on our patients and society. Certainly in the UK, we've had a lot of cases and a lot of deaths in the population generally. So in our FLIR trial, which is our large frontline trial, 1,500 patients, which I'm the chief investigator of, in over 100 centres in the UK, we've had 15 deaths from COVID in those 1,500 patients. And we see that in patients on therapy, poor responses to vaccines. And so in other groups of patients, the severity of illness has gone down in 2021 compared to 2022 because of vaccinations. We're not seeing that such a dramatic change in terms of TLL patients, they're still getting very unwell. We are getting better at treating COVID in terms of ICU and other therapies for COVID, which has had a minor impact. So what we've really avoided doing, the worst therapies for vaccine response are chemotherapy and CD20 therapy. So if you've had a CD20 therapy within six months, you will not have a vaccine response. And so, of course, the Nesclax has required patients to come to hospital regularly for tumor lysis monitoring and for abinutuzumab infusions. And it's not been safe to have that degree of monitoring. So we had a period of time where we used more BTK inhibitors rather than venetoclax or CD20 antibodies. More recently, we are using more venetoclax because you can't avoid very effective therapy of that long for all our patients. But I think still we would favor a BTK inhibitor. With our BTK inhibitor patients, we're seeing about a third of patients having a vaccine response after two doses of vaccine, and it's slightly higher with the third vaccine dose, and we now have fourth vaccine doses for our patients. I'm curious how you've approached patients who develop COVID, for example, if they're asymptomatic. I'm curious right now, January 2022, how often you're seeing people walk in with COVID and what you do about it, and particularly what you do if they're on different types of therapy. Yeah, so we've had over 100 patients with COVID in flare, and we've had quite a number in my CL practice generally. So most patients with COVID survive. Our practice until recently has been to continue the BT inhibitor while they're out of hospital, but if they need admission to stop the BT inhibitor when they came in, because we would then maybe intervening, and there's always the antiplatelet effect and potential interactions with other drugs we may want to use. So for the asymptomatic or relatively mild symptoms, we've continued the therapy, but for those requiring hospitalizations, we've stopped it temporarily, and then we started it when they recovered. We've changed now with the antivirals that are now available, so both the antibodies and the other ones that are coming through. Our patients now get a home PCR kit, all the CLL patients, so that if they get any symptoms, they send off a PCR, and if it's positive, that automatically leads to antivirals being sent to them including our serial patients on treatment. So I think preparing patients, obviously they're all almost all very aware of COVID and the concerns it has for them. Most of the patients are still shielding to some extent, but also to now, say this year, to make sure that they diagnose COVID earlier because with the Omicron variant, it's so infectious, we're seeing a lot of cases. We know in the general population, the severity of Omicron seems to be significantly less than previous variants. The anecdotal experience is probably also slightly less in CLL patients as well, but we're very early on in this current wave of Omicron, so I think we need a little bit more information. What about monoclonal antibodies? Yeah, so we've used Ronapreve and that's been available in the UK for a, a while, and then I think there's a couple of others that are approved or about to be approved in the UK. I think there's a concern over, obviously, the later variants, whether they will respond as well. But there's certainly evidence that they do have some response to the 
therapeutic antibodies. I personally think that the small molecules are probably going to be more effective in terms of hospitalizations and deaths. And because they don't target the spike protein, they're probably going to be less susceptible to mutations. So getting back to your patient, it brings up another issue that you kind of alluded to, which is whether to add CD20 to BTK, specifically a CALA. This patient was symptomatic, younger. So I'm kind of curious if there wasn't any COVID, so to speak, would you have liked to use an anti-CD20? I don't know if you could access it. And in what situations do you think adding a CD20 to BTK is something, at least clinically, that's helpful? Yeah. So first of all, I see no evidence for adding rituximab in terms of efficacy to any of the BTK inhibitors. There's a number of trials which have shown no advantage for doing that. I think the situation is different with abinutuzumab, which is clearly a more effective antibody in CLL. CLL has a low expression of CD20, so we know abinutuzumab leads to clearance of the blood and, in some cases, the bone marrow, even by itself. So the combinations look interesting. The only trial we have which has a randomized element of plus or minus abinutuzumab BTA is the LF8TN, which is acalabrutinib plus or minus abinutuzumab. And we had a number of patients with the combination who achieved MRD negative remissions. So I think it probably is additive. If you look at the whole trial, there are only two patients with MRD negative in ACALA alone, and I think 21 in the combination arm. And the PFS is, is significant, although it wasn't powered to look at the two ACALA arms. As yet, there's no difference in overall survival. So I don't think generally across the patients, I would be adding abinutuzumab now. But if the overall survival mature, there is a numerical difference, but not significant difference. I think if it becomes significant, then that really brings into question whether we should be adding a bit of If I was given the choice, you know, if I had that as an option, the patients who have heavy marrow involvement and cytopenias due to marrow involvement, it takes a long time for BTK inhibitors to clear the marrow. And I think the addition of a bit of may well speed up the response. And so whether it's used with a CALA or a Butinib or even with Venetoclax, I think that's a more effective way of clearing the marrow. So that's probably 5 or 10% of our patients who have significant cytopenias as an indication for treatment because of marrow involvement. But I think that they may well benefit from the addition of CD20. And that the marrow replacement in cytopenias is another thing that's on your list. Another thing is comorbidities, of course. Now, this is a 50-year-old otherwise healthy patient. I'm curious how you would have thought through the same situation that this patient faced if they were 85 and frail. Yeah, so I think in terms of the choice of the patient, of course, they may prefer a sort of tablet that they take and that they don't come to hospital and control the disease without side effects. If they've got significant cardiac toxicity, well, if they've got hypertension or if they've got previous cardiac history, I would certainly do a cardiac workup. So I tend to do ECGs in all my patients anyway to exclude arrhythmias and have a baseline. And then for a patient who has previous treatment for cardiac disease, I would do an echocardiogram just to look at the state of the heart going into the treatment. For a patient with significant left ventricular dysfunction or significant hypertrophy, I probably would prefer not to treat that patient, certainly with ibrutinib and possibly with any BTA inhibitor. So I'd probably lean towards a venetoclax regime for that patient. That's only a small proportion of patients. For patients with hypertension who don't have any major comorbidity when we investigate them, I'm comfortable with the second generation BTK inhibitors. The side effect profile of both ACALA and Zanibutin, we don't see the ventricular arrhythmias that are rarely seen with ibrutinib. So I'd favor those for the patient you mentioned. And then the other side, I think, is the renal function. So with venetoclax, 
treatment is to tumor lysis, managing tumor lysis. And obviously, if the renal function is significantly sort of impaired, then that has an impact on the hydration and managing TLS. And obviously, elderly patients, that's often the case. So the other thing on your list there, of course, are tumor markers, specifically IGVH and TP53. And for standard risk patients, unmutated, for example, you talk about BTK versus venetoclaxabinutuzumab. High risk, as you already talked about, BTK, a lot of people are saying that. But the thing on your slide that I thought was really interesting, good risk CLL, you mentioned it, but I just thought maybe you could elaborate on it because I haven't heard anybody kind of come out with this, although maybe a lot of people have mutated IGVH, specifically recommending venetoclaxabinutuzumab. And you talked about sort of the biologic rationale or the clinical research rationale for doing that. I'm just kind of curious, is that view, I don't remember anybody sort of stating that. Do a lot of people sort of follow that? I think one of the debates, and it depends on what's available for the patient, but is do you use chemotherapy for patients with CLL? Are there any CLL patients where FCR remains a standard of care? Well, in the IGHV mutated patients who aren't 17-PD-treated, probably half of those patients, or almost half of those patients, will be cured or will never relapse after FCR. So there's an argument for saying with FCR in the mutated patients, you might cure some patients. The problem, of course, with FCR is you'll kill some patients. So we have a 3% secondary MDS AML rate, which is virtually untreatable. And you're taking the best risk patients and exposing them to the most risky therapy. Now, if you look at the MRD eradication rate with FCR, in the mutated or generally, we see about 50 to 60% MRD eradication with the best FCR combinations. And so the one of the problems is you don't know that before you start who's going to achieve that. If you look at Veno, fixed duration 12 months for the class of we're seeing MRD negative rates higher than FCR. So we're up in the 78% MRD negative rates from the trials we have so far, including the Gaia 13, which was presented at ASH. And the five-year progression-free survival is better than FCR for those mutated patients, despite the all the mutated patients in that trial being elderly. So my opinion, and I think many people's opinion, is that you wouldn't use, if you didn't have to, chemotherapy in CLL at all. You'd replace FCR with Veno for the good risk patients because we don't have the secondary MDS. It's better tolerated, and we have very good outcomes of course, we're still collecting data on these now at five or six years. But I think the evidence would suggest we're curing some patients with NO in the mutated group. The unmutated patients are in 12 months of NO, but the median PFS is about 52 months. So we're still having three plus years off treatment before the half patients have relapsed. And so it's still a reasonable treatment for patients. What about BR? We know that BR is inferior to FCR. So we have head-to-head randomized trials showing that BR is inferior. And in none of the BR trials is there an evidence of a plateau. So I don't believe we're curing anything like the same number of patients with BR as we would with FCR or probably with Beno. So the reason I think people tend to use BR is because of tolerability. We don't see secondary MDS AML. We don't see the same degree of cytopenia as we sometimes see with FCR. But actually, there isn't a randomized phase 3 trial which showed BR is beneficial over targeted therapy or other chemotherapies. 
So my practice is not to use BR in CLL at least. Can you comment on your thoughts about combination therapy with venetoclax and BTK, including the GLOW study? And if you could, would you like to be able to do that outside a trial setting and what kind of patients? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think the combination of BTK, we can use any of the ones that are now available, and BCL2 inhibitor venetoclax, are very encouraging. So we're seeing MRD negative rates in the frontline setting in a region of 70 to 80% in some of the studies, phase two studies. The GLOW study was recruited patients who are elderly, who are not FCR eligible. And I think that raises the issue of tolerability of the combination. And as I mentioned before, if you're elderly and you've got other comorbidities, then do you really need the intensity of therapy when we have such effective ways of controlling the disease? So I think the combinations are really going to be focusing on those patients who really we're looking for either a curative or a prolonged time off treatment. We have another part of flare which we haven't presented yet. It's the second part, which has I plus V, abusive venetoclax, as one of the arms compared to FCR, ibuprofen monotherapy, in 800 patients. So we have that randomized trial coming through, and we have the triplet in the GAIA TL13 trial. We don't have to be survived yet. So we have those, and then there's an American, I think, an intergroup study looking at the combination as well. And so we have a number of phase three trials with BTK plus BCL2. In answer to your question, would I use it? I think we need the phase three data to mature, but I would say that certainly there are a group of patients who would benefit from that combination. And I think that group will be the IGHV unmutated and those with 17 p deletion, where we want to get really deep remissions and eradicate susceptible disease. So a couple of days ago, someone was presenting a case to me of a patient who initially had been treated with a BTK inhibitor, then got venetoclax CD20, and now had disease progression. And the presenter was saying, what's the best next therapy? And in my mind, I was thinking, it's being on a trial, but you tell me, how do you typically approach a patient like that off study? And what are some of the research considerations that you're excited about? Yeah, so if they're doubly refractory, so BTK and the first thing to ask is why they failed the BT inhibitor. Was it intolerance or was it refractoriness? So are they truly refractory? Because if it's intolerance, we can retry the same inhibitor or we can try one of the other ones and not lose that class of drug. And often it's sometimes difficult to work out exactly why the patient was refractory or failed that therapy because the patient doesn't really recall and it's not always straightforward. So that's the first thing to establish. Sometimes when we do, in my practice, look for BTA mutations, because if you've got a BTA mutation, I'm probably not going to use an irreversible BTA inhibitor again. And so that's helpful. Venetoclax, we very rarely use monotherapy now with venetoclax. We use using combination because there's good evidence of synergy with CD20 antibodies. And therefore, many patients who relapse after venetoclax have actually stopped the venetoclax. And so the time of therapy when they relapse is what's critical. So if they're relapsing during therapy or soon after therapy, then we wouldn't re-expose them to the drug. If we didn't have a clinical trial available, it obviously depends on the patient. So we might try a pa 3 kinase inhibitor. Well, certainly we've done that in patients, so I'd rather say we probably wouldn't go back to chemotherapy, although we haven't got many patients who have only failed the targeted therapy and not chemo. So would you consider chemotherapy? Probably not, but the mechanism of resistance is different. If they're eligible for an allergenic transplant, I'd certainly be considering that. 
Our experience has been the reversible BTA inhibitors are very effective in this group of patients. So we have the Bruin study, which I presented the data on, is now still open for people who fail five lines of therapy. So BTK inhibitor, reversible, Vinetolax, PI3 kinase, chemotherapy, CD20 antibody. So they're the worst patients that we've seen, and we've seen good responses to a reversible inhibitor in that group of patients. Well, unfortunately, it's not available, of course, outside a clinical trial. A lot of times people say the best option is a clinical trial, and that's sort of certainly a statement that everybody agrees with, but sometimes it really for sure is, because I know if I were in that situation, I think I'd want pertubrutinib. It's amazing. I'm surprised it's not available given what's been seen. Can you talk a little bit more about your experience with the drug? Also tolerability. I hear people saying it doesn't cause the problems that we've been seeing with the other BTK inhibitors. What have you seen? But we're saying with Pertubrutin loss of 305, we've been very impressed, actually. We've treated quite a lot of patients in the Bruin study. We've taken really the worst patients. We've taken patients with rictus transformation. We've taken patients with multiple, all of them with BTK failures and also venetolax failures. And the majority of patients have responded and responded very well. And we've got patients beyond the year now on therapy doing well with porous disease. The patients who haven't responded, the ones who are so unwell when they go into the trial, they really don't have long enough to respond. So if you look at the data, if patients remain on therapy for the first two or three months, if they're well enough to stay on therapy, most of them do extremely well. We've had a few who actually died in screening, showing the type of patients we're putting into the, the study. In terms of tolerability, we've really had very little problems. I mean, we've not seen any cardiac toxicity in my practice, and we haven't seen any of these sort of the arthralgias or the nuisance side effects we sometimes see. You said it's effective in Richter's, histologically transformed Richter's? Really? Yeah, so we've seen responses, and it's been reported actually in the trials, a number of Richter patients, even Richter's developing after ibrutinib, can respond to ibrutinib. Now, the issue for those patients is how long those responses will last for. So we've definitely seen very dramatic responses. One or two of our patients have then relapsed on therapy with Richter's. And so I think it's an option. We have seen responses with acalabrutinib as well in Richter's, and we reported that data, it's just been published. But I think it might buy us time to get to a more definitive treatment, maybe a transplant or CAR-T approach. So if in a patient with very proliferative Richter's, we might be able to control the disease for long enough to bridge them to therapy. One of the challenges with CAR-T therapy is that I was getting viable product from patients, but that seems to have been overcome with the lysocell. The response rates in the phase one, phase two trial are very impressive with those on higher dose levels, virtually all the patients responding. And if you look at the MRD eradication rate with CAR-T and CLL, we're seeing rates of over 70% consistently in the blood and marrow. And these are a refractory group of patients, but we're seeing some durable remissions with this approach. So I think it's encouraging with lysocell that we're seeing deep remissions in very refractory patients, and we're certainly looking forward to progressing this approach for those very refractory patients. Wow, that's really interesting. Has pertubrutin have been looked at in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma? I believe it is being looked at. Um, it's not a trial that I've done personally. It's certainly been looked at in mantle cell and in Bollenstrom's uh, and the other B-cell malignancies where BT inhibitors have been used, and we're seeing responses in those groups of patients as well. Really interesting. You've also mentioned the option outside of trial setting of a PI3 kinase inhibitor. 
Maybe you could kind of elaborate a little bit on your thoughts about the ones that have been studied, including the U2 regimen with ublituximab and also umbrilisa, but also the question whether or not there's value in it. Is that just a separate decision or do they sort of go together? Mm-hmm. Well, I think initially because analysis was approved with rituximab as a partner and the design of the trial was a placebo plus rituximab versus Idella plus rituximab. I mean, I remember doing the initial trials about 10 years ago was because of the lymphocytosis we saw. We didn't know initially whether that was significant so we were trying to control the lymphocytosis. Of course, it turns out it's not that important. So analysis was really blighted by the autoimmune complications. So about 50% of patients stop because of diarrhea. And sometimes the colitis can be life-threatening. I've seen total colectomies required for idolosib associated colitis in the past. And the earlier we used the drug in treatment and frontline, the side effects became more profound with the transaminitis and the pneumonitis. It had been developed at the same time as ibrutinib was sort of worn out because of the tolerability. Well, we did see good responses. The Velocid was then developed without rituximab and was approved. And we see responses, but we still see diarrhea with the Velocid. And then we've used Velocid in the U2 with the CD20 antibody, or tuximab. And we've seen nice responses there. And there is a biological explanation that might reduce the side effects because it's also a case inhibitor. We are seeing, at least initially, not the same levels of diarrhea or autoimmune complications, although we only have one or two randomized or big phase two trials and we don't have the follow-up. So I think there is a role for a PA3 kinase inhibitor in CLL for those patients who have failed other treatments. And I think the U2 regime is probably the one that's winning out in terms of tolerability and responses that we're seeing. I think we really need more data in that group of refractory patients to really know whether it becomes a treatment starting on its own or whether it's a bridge to an alternative therapy. You're referring to the difference in efficacy of abinutuzumab versus rituximab. Where does ublituximab fit in? Well, there's no head-to-head comparison directly, but it seems to be more similar to abinutuzumab in its response. And so I think it seems to be effective to treat CLL. So another question. I wanted to ask you, the GLOW regimen What I was curious about is when I first heard the fact that you start out with the BTK and then you bring in the venetoclax, it kind of seems similar to like when you use CLL-14, you start out with the benetuzumab, debulk them, and then when they get the venetoclax, you don't have to worry as much about TLS. But then I was thinking about the increase in white count that you see with BTK. So I was trying to figure out how that worked. Do you wait for that to go down before you give the venetoclax? Yeah, well, we've done quite a lot of work on that, actually, looking with clarity, which is our first combination to do where we give two months of ibrutinib followed by venetoclax, and then we've done it, obviously, in Flare and in Captivate. So initially, when we were doing the studies, we considered a high lymphocyte count to be a high risk of tumor lysis, so the lymphocytosis would be a problem. But actually, we changed our protocols to not include that because we didn't see tumor lysis, even with a very high white cell count. So... The debulking of the disease in terms of the lymph nodes and the spleen is what seems to reduce the TLS risk when you add venetoclax. And so we're seeing very low levels of tumor lysis in all of the combinations where we use a BTK inhibitor first for two to three months, followed by the addition of venetoclax. We still monitor TLS bloods in our patients, but we wouldn't consider them high risk. We wouldn't admit them. We wouldn't hydrate them. We would do it in the outpatient setting. The bulk disease and the renal function are the two 
most important factors leading to a TLS risk. So someone who's got very bulky disease, which is very rare if they've started a BTA inhibitor, but if they're de novo, or if they've got renal dysfunction, certainly if creatinine is less than 60 or even lower than that maybe, we would admit them and hydrate them probably in the first few doses. But apart from those patients, the high lymphocyte doesn't seem to confer a risk in our experience. This concludes our program. Special thanks to Dr. Hillman, and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Love for Oncology Today.